listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Good morning, Real Life family. Good morning, family joining us online. Good to have you guys with us. Thanks for uh, sharing your Thanksgiving weekend with your family here at Real Life. Um, <clears throat> you know, I hope that you all had a great Thanksgiving, and I trust that all of you were safe and you adhere to all the recommendations of not seeing anybody that you love or see, spending time with family, right? Right, that's what I thought. Uh, turkey season is over, which means we get to move into Christmas season. Unless, of course, you work at a store like Michael's or Home Hobby Lobby, and you've been celebrating Christmas since September. Um, <clears throat> but this is a great time for family. My family loves this time of the year. And one of the reasons that they love it is because they love the decorations, they love the family traditions that we have, and they love Christmas music. Now, I'm a little bit of a, I guess my family would call a little bit of a Grinch when it comes to this time of year. And there's lots of reasons why, I suppose. But one of them, I think they attribute that to is because I am a firm believer that Christmas music should not be allowed to be played until the day after Thanksgiving and can only run through Christmas, right? In special occasions, we will allow it to go till Christmas or New Year's Eve, but very rarely. My family always counts it down. Just this last Thursday, we're sitting around the table playing a game, and my daughter's like, only two hours and 45 minutes, Dad, till I can start playing Christmas music. Like, whatever, you knock yourself out. I'm sure they listen to it when I'm not around, but that's okay, as long as I don't have to hear it till Black Friday. Um, <clears throat> now, there's a lot more going on this week, this time of year, right? Besides the decorations, besides the family traditions, beside the Christmas music, it is Advent season. It is a season where we as a church get to celebrate. Advent means to anticipate. And so during this time of year, we get to anticipate with our brothers and sisters. We get to anticipate two things. We remember the anticipation that we had way back in the day before Jesus showed up, and we get to celebrate because he did come. And also we get to anticipate his second coming, the time that he will come back for his people. So this is a great time for us to celebrate and to remember what Jesus has done for us. Each year, we talk as a church about the four elements of Advent, the four themes, hope, peace, joy, and love. And each year we are tasked with the, the job of trying to find out new and exciting ways to bring that to you guys, which is not very easy, to be honest with you. This year, we are going to use Christmas songs to, to be our vehicle to, to guide the discussion along the way. And today, since we are talking about hope, we chose the song, O Holy Night. So I want to throw up the words on here and kind of just, I'm going to walk through some of them. I'm only going to read my favorite verses um, <clears throat> because I'm up here and I can do what I want. But let's read first verse here. It says, Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. 
for yonder breaks a new and glorious morning. And verse 3 says this, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. There are a lot of great lines in this uh, this this song. The second verse is good too. The choruses are great. But what stood out to me is what like the first verse talks about, the state of the world before Jesus came in. Souls feeling unworthy. The world just pining in its sin, yearning for something more. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And then there's joy. Then there's hope. And the world can rejoice in that. The third verse I love too, just because it talks about how uh, he comes and has taught us to love one another. His laws, love, is good news, his gospel is peace, and chains will break and oppression will cease. I've been singing this song along with a lot of the other songs that we're going to talk about in the next few weeks for going on 30 plus years. And I've never really stopped to think about the words that I was singing. It's just been kind of a rote habit that I do as I'm going through this. Oh yeah, oh holy night, the stars are brightly shining, and I'm usually trying to watch to see if somebody's going to mess up that chorus when they have to get really high. That's what it's been for me. But this week, as I've been working through this, I've been seeing more depth to those words. And I want to I use those words as our, our vehicle, like I said, to, to guide our discussion about hope. But before I do that, I want to give you guys a little history lesson, something that I found very, very fascinating about this song and in its beginnings. It all started in a small French village uh, where this priest in the 1840s walks up to one of the local guys. He's a, a poet, and I think he was a wine connoisseur as well. And he, this priest wanted to have a special thing for their Christmas Eve service that year. So he goes up to this guy. His name was um, Capot. He said, hey, will you write something up for us this Christmas Eve so that we can read it at the Christmas Eve Mass? Capot decides that he would do it uh, begrudgingly. And one day he's riding a, a carriage from that village into Paris. And as he's doing that, he is reading through some text, trying to find some inspiration. And this is the text that he was reading. Luke chapter 2. I'm going I'm to read from verse 8 to 14. It says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find him wrapped, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, 
praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is the text that Capoe is reading through over and over and over again that causes him to pen this song that we know. And he calls it Midnight Christians. And it looks a little different than the one that we know. Initially, uh, it was just meant to be a poem. And he loved it so much, he thought he did so well, that he decided he was going to grab a composer buddy of his and have him write some music for it. And so the song, it became a song, and they sung it at Christmas Eve, and it exploded. It was super popular. Everybody loved it. Bairds are singing it in the street. They're singing it at pubs. It was a big deal. And it starts to spread across France, and pretty soon the French leaders in the church get wind of this. And the thing that was most disturbing to them was who Capot was. Capot was not a believer. In fact, they thought he was an atheist. And the guy who composed it, a guy by the name of Adams, also was not a believer. And this enraged the leaders of the church. So they banished the song in France. It was no longer allowed to be sung there in the churches. But it was too late. The popularity was too high, and it was spreading across the country. Within a decade, it had made its way across the Atlantic into French Canada and also into the United States. And there was a guy there in the United States. He was a minister, and he was a music critic. His name was uh, John Sullivan Dwight. And he got a hold of this song, and he decided he was going to um, translate it into English. And as he did that, he took some liberty with it and changed some of the wording and turned it into the song that we know today. He changed quite a bit of the, uh, the choruses and a lot of the first verse, but he kept this idea that the thrill of hope existed because of the day the Savior was born. There is this fascinating story surrounding this song. It's, it's kind of become a legend. In 1871, during the Franco-Prussian War, on Christmas Eve, during a lull in the battle, a French soldier was allegedly jumped up and started singing this song in front of everybody, and nobody shot him. Instead, a German soldier in return jumped up from his side and started singing a hymn of his own. And this impromptu battle of the bands caused a 24-hour ceasefire, and they were able to observe Christmas. In a time when there wouldn't, doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of hope, in a time where your only hope may be that you would wake up the next morning, or maybe that you would die a quick and painless death. These guys found hope in a song about a Savior being born thousands of years before. And that's the kind of hope we all need, right? That's the kind of hope that we all want. We've heard lots of stories throughout time of people who have survived just crazy situations, crazy oppression because they had a a little bit of hope. And times when those, that hope went away and people were not able to survive those situations. But what is hope? What does hope look like? As I 
have worked through this this last week, and I, I thought about what hope was for me, what hope looked like in the text, the things that I saw in the text. And I saw three different things in the text and in my own life. The first thing is that I've seen that hope is anticipation. The excitement of hoping for something that is about to come. Like we are excited about this time of year. We are excited to look forward to what the, the day that Jesus comes back again. But that kind of hope also requires some action. We have to live each day as if it could be our last, anticipating that that is the day that Jesus comes back, right? I also think about hope as an expectation. Like we know with a certain degree of certainty that something will happen. Something will occur. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we're pretty sure it will. This past week I had uh, something happen that kind of explained the subtle differences between anticipation and expectation for me. My daughter had an orthodontist appointment again this weekend. And we hope... Well, let me rephrase that. She hopes every time she walks into that orthodontist appointment that that's the day that she gets her braces off. I hope that they stay on until she's 35 when she's allowed to date. But every time she walks in there, I mean, we expect that someday, someday those braces are going to come off. And every time she walks in, she's excited with anticipation that that's going to be the day. And then every time she walks out disappointed, and I'm still smiling. But in that anticipation, she's given things that she has to do to keep the process of uh, moving forward to be the day when she can get that stuff removed off her teeth. And hope is alive, and excitement stays alive, and we keep moving forward. I also see hope as an expression of confidence. When I say, when I think about the phrase, my hope is in the Lord, like that is confidence. My confidence is God, my, in God. My faith, my foundation is in who God is. These little, these three little things, uh, that I just described, I know I just skipped the rock, a rock across the surface of this explanation of what hope is, because hope is more than that. I know it is. I know you've experienced it as more than that. And I I came across a psalm this week, Psalm 71, that talks about these three things, and just in such depth, it made me tear up every time I read through this verse, these verses. But I'm not going to read those to you today. Because our life groups are going to talk about those this week. They're going to read through Psalm 71, and they're going to work through that stuff. So if you aren't in a life group, I suggest you get in one so that you can see that verse and read through it yourselves. But as I was reflecting more on what hope is, a quote came to me from a workbook that I've gone through in the past. And... Some of you here have worked through this workbook. It's called The Genesis Process. They were just talking about it on the video. And those of you have, that have gone through it, like myself, know that this is one of the best and one of the worst books that you could ever go through in your life because you have to face a lot of things that you've been burying deep in your heart and in your life and drudge those things up and deal with them. 
but it is such a great book and it's such a great process to go through. But one of the things that he says in the first process, he's talking a lot about hope, and one of the things he says is this. He says, "When, when you project your current situation into the future, either hope or hopelessness is what looks back at you. Either hope or hopelessness is what looks back at you. As I think about the times in my own life when I have been sitting in those difficult circumstances in my life, those times when I look to the future and all I see is hopelessness, as I thought about that, there was one thing that seemed to be very prevalent in those moments. It felt like God was silent. It felt like God was not listening, that he wasn't there. And I know I'm not alone in this feeling. I know many of you have felt this, and I know many of you are maybe in that right now. I thought, I know that God is not silent. I know that he is present in those moments. And I know where I can go to look to find examples of that. So I went to the text. And in the text, I found the story of his people when they're in, in uh, Egypt. And they're under oppression. They're under slavery. And they are, I'm sure, experiencing a lot of hopelessness. I'm sure that they are feeling like God is silent as they are crying out in their agony, crying out for God to show up and rescue them from the oppression that they've been living under. I imagine that their hope was in the stories that they'd heard from their, from their parents and their grandparents about a God who would not forget about them. I imagine that they expected that someday he would show up. But I wonder if, as each day passed on, that hope chipped away a little more and more each day. But he does eventually show up, right? Exodus 3, Moses goes in, he shows up, he brings his people out, and he establishes them as a kingdom, as a kingdom of priests, which isn't exactly what they were expecting. They were just hoping to be delivered and brought out from under the oppression and the slavery that they were in. But God showed up and did more. He said, I want you to be a kingdom of priests for me. I want you to put on display for the world who I am and how I want to interact with my creation. Unfortunately, that didn't last very long. If you know the story, you know that it didn't take very long before they were wanting to be like everybody else around them, that they wanted a king, a person ruling over them instead of God. They wanted to build their own kingdom, and so God let them. And as they progressed in trying to build that kingdom of their own, they moved further and further away from what God had intended them to be. And pretty soon, that kingdom was divided, it was broken, And then it became somebody else's. They were taken away in exile. And they were again under the oppression of somebody else. And once again, I'm sure that they felt like God was silent in those moments. In those circumstances where they felt like there was no hope. Like there was nothing for them the next day. This period that 
after they come back from exile and they are trying to become a, a kingdom again, this is the period that we call the silent period. It's that, it's that page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hundreds of years that the people are striving to become who God had created them to be. They're trying to be a great kingdom again. Their hope is that God is going to once again show up. They're expecting him to show up, but this time it was different because they were also expecting that he was going to be doing it through a Messiah because they had a a prophet in Isaiah who told them that that would be so. And they were excited with anticipation because that hope was that he was going to show up as this mighty military leader that was going to have an army at his back and was going to come in and wipe out anybody that was oppressing them, take them out, reestablish a kingdom. They would be great again, and everything would be okay. But that's not how things went. God did show up. We just read it in Luke 2. God did show up, and he did it in a way that they weren't expecting. Because hope, when it's completed, oftentimes looks much different than what was hoped for. They hoped, they expected that God would deliver them again. And they were anticipating that it was going to be a war hero, a a mighty politician that would come in to lead them to um, a kingdom like they had before. But that's not how God did it. Because God did not want to give them the opportunity to screw it up again. Instead, he showed up himself. He said, let me show you how it's done. He shows up as a baby born in a manger in the lowliest, most humble of beginnings. Then he walks the earth as a man named Jesus And shows us what the kingdom of God should look like. Shows us how we should be living. What a kingdom of priests should look like. He showed that there is indeed hope in his kingdom. And he invites each and every one of us into that hope. When he showed up, he freed, he offered a freedom. Not from just oppression of our circumstances that we find ourselves in, but he offered a freedom of oppression from sin, from death. He gave us the freedom to, to love and to forgive. He gave us the freedom to live as kingdom, as, as priests in his kingdom, to put him on display in everything that we say and everything that we do. Freedom to partner with him to bring joy, to bring hope to a weary world that is dying for it. Some of you, some of us know what this kind of hope is like. Some of us have experienced this. Some of us, when we project our current circumstances into the future, we see hope looking back at us. And it's not because of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, but rather because of where we are choosing to live in that moment in God's kingdom. That we are choosing to to be a kingdom of priests for him each and every day, to put God on display, to love others, to bring his 
bring heaven crashing into earth, as we say around here. You are keenly aware of the thrill of hope and the joy that it brings to the weary world. Some of us, though, are sitting here today and we have no idea what that's like. Some of us feel like we are in that period of silence in our own lives. We have had a day. We've had one of those weeks, one of those months, one of those years where it feels like God is nowhere to be found. Like his kingdom is not present at all. And it's really difficult in those times to feel like you can hear God's voice or even see him at all. Some of us have lost jobs. Some of us have lost homes, lost loved ones. And that when we project those moments into the future, it's really hard to see anything but hopelessness staring back at us. I know that I have been in moments like that in my life more times than I care to admit. And I know that I've learned a lot in those moments from those experiences with God and with life. And one of the things that I can think of that has been the most impactful is that if I am only concerned about trying to change the circumstances around me, I am going to always be disappointed and feel hopeless. I need something more in those moments. I need a hope that does not fail. I need a hope that will not disappoint, that will always show up, that will always be fulfilled even when it doesn't look like the way I think it should. Isn't that the kind of hope that you need in those moments too? Isn't that the kind of hope that you are desiring today if you're, in, if you're sitting here today and you're, you're like, yeah, I can't hear God at all? Don't you need that kind of hope too? Doesn't the world that we are in need that kind of hope I know that sometimes that kind of hope feels like it's out of reach. Like there's no way that you could even grasp it, but it is, it is never out of reach. It's never out of reach because God is never far from you. And for me, I think it starts with as I sit in those moments and I project into, fut- into the future my current situation, it starts with a question. And that question is, what kingdom am I trying to build? What kingdom am I focused on? Because if I am focused on my kingdom and trying to change my circumstances and make my life better, then more often than not, I'm going to just see hopelessness staring back at me. But if I'm focused on God's kingdom, and if I'm focused on living each day to put him on display, and that is my goal in life that day, I see hope staring back at me. I see hope. And I believe that hope comes 
This kind of hope comes from being confident in God. It comes from being confident in his character, in his kingdom. It comes from being confident in the work that he did walking this earth as Jesus. For me, it comes in being confident in who he says I am and being confident in who he's, what he calls me to do. This is the kind of hope that is thrilling. This is the kind of hope that a weary world needs. The kind of hope that we can rejoice in and the kind of hope that we can invite other people in to rejoice with us. The kind of hope that we are able to look forward and see that new and glorious morning on the horizon where his mercies are new and his love never fails. The kind of hope that communion reminds us of each week. We're going to go to our time of communion right now. If you want to get those ready. If you're new with us uh, here at Real Life, we do communion probably different than you've ever seen at any other church. First off, we do it every week. And second, we don't require you to be a member of Real Life to take communion with us. We only ask that you have made the choice to become a member of God's family. And you've made that choice in your life, and we'd love for you to celebrate with communion, uh, in communion with us. You know, it's, uh, it was kind of funny as I was thinking about working through communion with you guys and looking at these elements, I couldn't help but, but think about those guys who were sitting with Jesus 2,000 years ago. Those guys who had been walking around with him in Israel for three years that had been hearing him talk about the kingdom of God and hearing him uh, live out what the kingdom of God looked like, inviting them into that as well with them. And in, this mo- in that moment where they're sitting around the table three years later, after hearing all that stuff, still some of them hoped that he was going to raise an army and free them from the oppression of Rome. I know that hope is not easy. I know that choosing to put God on display each and every week, each and every day, is not an easy thing to do. I fail at it often, as I know you probably feel like you do as well. But I am not alone in doing this. I am not alone... And I have reminders along the way of the hope that I have represented here in these elements of communion. Reminder that our hope is in the work that he completed while he was here. That his body and his blood were shed for you and I so that we could have hope in those circumstances that feel hopeless. 
So on that night, he took the bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his his friends, and he and he said, "This is my body, which is going to be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me." After the dinner, he took the cup. He said, "This cup is the covenant of the new, uh, the is the new covenant in my blood. So whenever you drink it in remembrance of me." Remember the sacrifice that I have given you. Let's remember. Father God, I, I am so grateful, Lord, to you each and every day for the sacrifice that you have given us. But more than that, Lord, I am, I am thankful for the hope that that sacrifice gives to us. Lord, I'm thankful that we can have hope in your kingdom reigning today and every day. And it's not a kingdom that we are um, outsiders in, but it's a kingdom that you've invited us to be a part of. It's a kingdom that lives inside our hearts. A kingdom of hope, a kingdom of love, of joy and peace. a kingdom that brings excitement that we can rejoice in in those weary times. So Father, I I pray for each one of us today, wherever we're at, whatever the circumstances are that surround us, Lord, I pray that um, that we we can look and focus on you in those moments. Lord, help us to see you in those circumstances to find hope and the love that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.